Take that Bible that you're holding this morning and open it back to the book of James. Open that Bible to the book of James as those children go out. Look at them. It's a massive crew. James chapter 2, we come to the section on the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. If you can look there at James 2, I'd like to just read the text with you as we give honor to the Word of God each and every week in the reading of the Word. Let me read the entire section for you. We'll be in partiality both this week, next week, as well as on December 1st. 13 verses. We'll take three weeks at it, but follow along. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you then not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? And they are, are they not the ones that blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgments. Joel Engel, who is, he's an author, and he tells of an experience that he once had aboard a Los Angeles bus. He's driving the bus system, okay? He said, picking up his article, considering the large crowd, the lack of voices startled me. Only a rustle of newspapers and the groaning diesel engine broke the silence. Several well-dressed men stood in the aisle, so I assumed all the seats were taken. But as I moved to the rear, I spotted an empty aisle seat on a double bench and fathom at once why it remained unoccupied. The young man next to the window was breathtakingly ugly. His grotesque face apparently the victim of fibroid tumors. Yet it wasn't, Ingalls said, only his face that made him so unappealing. His long, filthy, matted hair and tattered, tatted clothing warned others away. He was obviously homeless. And he sat with 
shoulders hunched, eyes fixed through the window, truly the image of a beast, forlorn and excruciatingly alone. Nearly paralyzed by pity, I gave silent thanks that my young daughter wasn't with me, asking her inevitable questions about him in a non a too discreet voice, or worse, uttering revulsion. But it was because of her, Ingle says, that I finally sat down. The kind of man I want my daughter's father to be sits on a bus next to someone whose only crime is extreme ugliness. He said, I can't pretend I relaxed. My left shoulder and arm scrunched involuntarily. My entire torso leaned pizza-like away from him. Continuing to stare out the window, he didn't acknowledge my presence. The bus made one more stop before leaving again. Several people boarded. An elderly woman walked toward the rear. I waited for anyone else, male or female, to offer her a seat. None did. So I stood up and motioned to her, and she said, No, I don't want to sit there, she said loudly, next to him. I mean, our, our hearts go out to the man who wrote about the incident and who made an attempt to reach out. They certainly go out to the homeless man with the condition in which he was in. I mean, the insensitivity of the elderly woman is repulsive. Her coldness, her indifference is shocking. I mean, would this not be more shocking if it happened at Grace Church of the Valley? I mean, it'd be more shocking if it happened right here. I mean, partiality, prejudice, discrimination in the body of Christ strikes at the very heartbeat of God. Mark Twain, who's not a theologian, as you know, said that prejudice is the ink with which all history is written. And we must remember, certainly, that America is only one generation removed from racial segregation. One generation. In the Middle East, discrimination is at an all-time high. In fact, I opened the magazine up just this week, and there were men standing on one border, looking into another border with rocks and bottles and their faces covered, throwing into the next country that surrounds their particular border. Arab and Jewish conflicts grab headlines every day. I mean, you would probably agree with me that after 2,000 years of church history, you would think that James 2, 1 through 13 would be irrelevant, but it's not. And I would say that these verses are as vital today as they were penned nearly 2,000 years ago. I mean, beloved at Grace Church, just the fact, think about it, just the fact 
that there are 13 verses addressing partiality reveals a problem in the early church. I mean, it is very apparent. James writes so open that they obviously were failing. At the end of the last chapter, look at the last phrase in 127. To keep oneself unstained from the world, and then he launches into the sin of partiality. They obviously were failing at that. And so James, by the Spirit of God, look at 2.1, says, My brothers, show no partiality. Now, just as we start, and we'll be looking at this just for a couple weeks, what is partiality? I'm reading from the the ESV, uh, partiality, maybe it says favoritism, don't show favoritism. But that little word there in the language where it says show no partiality is literally in the Greek language to receive someone by the face. Okay, that's what it means. It's kind of an interesting word. It means to judge someone by the face, to judge someone's outward appearance. And James says, stop it. Stop it. I mean, I think we do this all the time, all the time, all the time. Whether you're young or whether you're old, we judge people by their face. Thus the illustration of the man on the bus who nobody wanted to sit next to him because of his condition. We judge a person's looks. We judge a person's wardrobe. We judge a person's prestige, whatever that prestige might be. We judge a person's race. We judge a person's bank account. We judge a person's external reputation. We judge a person's intelligence. It's very interesting for me to be on the campus last weekend at Stanford visiting my nephew, who's a Ph.D., working on plasma for rocket ships. And he went on for about five minutes, and I just nodded in agreement to him, you know. And he's a brilliant guy, a brilliant guy. But we judge people, do we not, depending on their intelligence or the job that they hold or the neighborhood that they live in or the social status that they have within Kingsburg, within Reedley, within Visalia. Listen, all of that is known and we do this. But the truth is, the truth is, is that earthly honor means absolutely nothing to God. Nothing to God. It really doesn't. And so here we've got to address this issue because if you're visiting today, we teach the Bible here just consecutively and we're in the book of James and we've got to touch on it. We can't deflect ourselves from it. And now remember as you step into James that the book is is kind of put around a series of tests. Everything in our Christian life in one way is a test. And we've looked at the first three tests. Do you remember? Just to touch on those, our faith is tested in trials in 2 through 12. Our faith is tested in temptation in 13 through 18. And our faith is tested, as we saw last, in 19 through 27 on our obedience to God's Word. Now, as we follow the argument of the author James here, we're going to expand that obedience to God's word with this fourth area that's being tested. My faith, your faith, 
is tested in one's reaction to partiality. It's tested in one's reaction to partiality. This is a test of your faith. Are you partial towards others? How do you treat the needy? How do you treat the poor? How do you treat the unloved, if you will, the unwelcomed? Are you partial to others? Now, what James will do here this week and in the weeks to come is present five reasons why partiality is a sin and why it's inconsistent with our faith and our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Five reasons why partiality is a sin and why it's utterly inconsistent with our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just go to the text. First, partiality is a sin because of the clear command from God. Because of the clear command from God. Look at the text with me in 2.1. He says, my brothers, show, here's the command, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. There's a clear command. Show no partiality. Now, look again as you you approach the text in verse 1. James says, my brothers. And so I just recognize to you, he's such an affectionate pastor. He's not beating on these people. He's appealing to them. And he's appealing to them as brothers. He's appealing to them with affection. He's appealing to them as family, if you will. And so he comes as a, as a shepherd. Now, you just you note that in 2.1, that he's talking to brothers. He's talking, if you will, to the family of God. He's talking to us this morning. This isn't a, a, a command, if you will, to... Others outside of the faith, although they should live that way, this is a direct command to us. And look what he says there. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is contradictory if you do show it. I mean, you would agree with me that God is, 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 is wonderful. I wrote my dissertation on the attributes of, of God, and I had a wonderful time studying all the scripture about his attributes. And if I were to stop here and have some of you stand up, you can recite those attributes. And we would cite the attributes of his love, would we not? We've sang about that this morning. We would probably tell you about the attribute that he's holy and go to Isaiah 6, you know, where it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Maybe some of you would take me to Psalm 139 and you would talk about the omnipotence of God. Or in that same chapter, you would talk about the omniscience of God, that he's everywhere present at all places, at all times, fully present. Some of you would cite his forgiveness, the forgiveness that he gave for your sins, his mercy extended to you, his grace given to you, and many, many more. But listen, bound up within the Scripture is that he is also impartial. When you think, now, you know, you might not have stood up and said that one, but when you count God's attributes, and when you make up his character, and you begin to describe that as revealed in the word of God, one of his attributes is that he's impartial. So to commit the sin of partiality 
is a very serious offense. It is utterly inconsistent with God's attributes. He's impartial. He is, I like to say it this way, no respecter of persons. Now, let me take you to some scriptures just to show you this so this command is clear. Look over in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Some of these might even come up, I believe, on the screen. There it is. I mean, you look at this one there in Deuteronomy chapter 1, very clear out of the Old Testament where God said, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Obviously, he's talking to leaders there. He's talking to judges there. And he's telling these judges very clearly there, as you see, to not show partiality. I'll state it again. What do you mean, partiality? It means to receive someone by the face to receive them on the basis of externals, to receive them on the basis of who they are rather than looking at the heart. And so he tells them there. And then in chapter 10, verse 17, the Lord, your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show, there it is again, partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. He is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and almighty, the awesome God. There it's repeated. He does not show partiality. So recognize when we say that it's a sin, it's a sin because of the clear command of God that he himself, is not partial. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 7, King Jehoshaphat exhorted the judges that he appointed, be careful what you do, for the Lord God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality. So when you think, and I think, of the things that God hates, he hates partiality. It's not bound up in his character. And for those who hold faith in Jesus Christ, it can't be in yours. Look over in the New Testament, maybe in the book of Romans. It's all over the scripture. I'm just touching on these. We can touch on a few others. In in Romans, there's another one you saw there in Malachi, but stay on this one. In Romans 2, it there very clearly says regarding the judgment of God, there is no partiality with God. I mean, even today when the people come up and give uh, testimony a little bit later, you're going to hear them say some who had sin, what we might say great sin, other people who thought I was okay, I'm okay, you're okay. But the truth is when God looks at us, there's no partiality with God. He sees all of our sin. In fact, turning your Bible over to the book of Ephesians just for a second, over in the book of Ephesians, Paul delineating it there, and he also speaks of this as well in the book of Colossians. But he says very clearly in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, where he's beginning to tell about responsibility for those who work, he says in 6.5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service 
with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free masters. And then he dresses those who own businesses, if you will, or who lead others. He says, masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in, is in heaven and that there is no, what? Partiality with him. Meaning that, listen, there's no partiality with God, whether you're just a day laborer or whether you're a business owner. There's no partiality with God. He sees us all the same, does he not? In other words, he's not a respecter of persons. Look back, just if you will, to the book of Acts. You have so many of these, and I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a flavor of the Scripture. In Acts chapter 10, so that it would be bolstered in what we say on this subject, here the the good news was being preached to the Gentiles. Peter had in that same chapter received, received the vision um, about the animals and so forth. And in fact, he even said, if you look at 1028 of Acts, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And you'll note this in verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no, what? Partiality. That in every nation, anyone who fears him and done what is right or do, and what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. But I love that phrase. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Listen, the Lord doesn't love us more than he loves the people in Albania where Corey and Christine are going. He doesn't love your kids more than he loves flesh and blood in Albania. I mean, he's not a respecter of our country any less than another country. He's the judge over all. And here he says there's, you know, that in every nation who is found, God's not partial with people, okay? He's just not. He's not a receiver of their face. And enough for me to say that our church could never be that. Amen? I mean, you would never want to walk in this place and ever. I mean, I, I just, and I'm not thinking that we're guilty of this. You can tell me if you are. I've had people tell me about that in, the, in Kingsburg sometimes. I've not seen it in here. But listen, we could never be a church that receives people by the face. We could never be a church because it's not part of the heart of God. We could never be a people that receive or don't receive someone based on their skin color, based on their occupation. I mean, even as we meet with James 127 tomorrow on orphans and widows, and some of our people were at the, the, um, the, the, the church that hosted kind of an event for that. Listen, it could get a little messy in our church. You may be seeing some different people in here. You, 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 it could be that we're, as we reach out, it's going to look a little different, and praise the Lord if it does. You never know what it can look like. I, I remember one time, this is off the cuff. I, it's not nowhere in my notes. I sometimes get in trouble when I do that. But I remember one time when two girls, not at this church, of course, but two girls walked into a church that I was pastoring. 
that a lip ring, a belly ring, ear rings, you know, plural, their, you know, their belly was girls without Christ, without the Lord. Somebody had brought them. And the mom called me the next day of the friend who bought them, brought them and said, you know, Scott, I usually would not tell you this, but they just got funny looks from the girls. Just they, they kind of were looked at like, like, ooh, you're, you're different. And I just said, I, I'm so sorry. I, I said, I, I said that, can, that could never happen. So I got off the phone and um, I called my youth pastor and I said, hey, I'm bringing down a chain and a padlock. I said, your ministry's done. No, I wasn't being serious, Jeff. Don't think I was serious. He said, what are you talking about? I said, you might as well put a padlock on your door. What do you, what do you mean? And this guy is not partial. He's a good youth. I said, hey, your ministry's done. You got two visitors last night who somehow were looked at in a, in a funny way. Listen, when we begin to make distinctions where the Lord doesn't make distinction. When we know that 1 Samuel said, God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the what? The heart. We better make sure that we don't judge people by what they wear necessarily, by what color their hair is. We've got to be very, very careful of that. And, and obviously, he was able to shepherd his church. But listen, sometimes those things are shocking. Shocking. And you're raising your own children to be modest. Praise the Lord for that. And then they get out in the real world and they find out people aren't so modest. And when they, at least where I was living, tried to give a dress code to people at the public school. And, um, and I asked about it and they said, Scott, that's the problem is we can't control the kids. Because when their parents come in, you should see how they're dressed when they pick them up and the kids have to go home. But listen, this is an issue. But God's not a receiver of the face, nor is he a receiver of the person's prestige. Let me show you one other thing. Look over in 1 Timothy just for a second. In other words, this cuts both ways. He judges all. There's no partiality in Romans 2.11. But listen, even in this one, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, you know, you got the role of wid- widows there, and you got the role of elders there, and you got a bunch of instruction given to the church. It says in verse 17, 517, let the elders who rule well. In other words, some elders rule. Some elders rule with an adjective well. Let them be considered worthy of double honor, double honor in attitude, double honor possibly in remuneration. He says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching for the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labor deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And now this, those who persist in sin, rebuke them. And I take that to be elders. Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And then look what he says to Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from what? Partiality. 
In other words, you don't create a special caveat for a place for a guy who's in sin. You don't cover that up. You rebuke him in the presence of all. It's almost like with church discipline. You do that. You tell it to the church in Matthew 18. And if you've got a leader in sin, it says here, doing nothing from partiality. In other words, you don't give him the pass. So listen, we cannot be partial because of the clear command of God. The color of skin, it doesn't matter. The number of degrees is not impressive to God. Our Lord was gracious to the woman at the well. He was gracious to Nicodemus, right? To a woman and then to a high standing. Talk to both of them. He was willing to touch the leper, but he was also willing to speak to the rich young ruler. God is not a respecter of persons. He always looks at the soul. And so here, I'm saying it to me, to us, stop judging others on superficial levels from the way they dress to their position in life, to their talent, to their popularity, to their social rank, to their race, to their fame or lack of fame, to their financial resources or lack of it, okay? It is inconsistent. Look what James says. Look at the text again back in James. He says it is inconsistent here with, he says in two one. he says to show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, okay? Our glorious Lord is the one who is to be exalted. And here the rich man who has little glory is capturing your attention. Christ who is the glory in the scripture, who is coming back in glory, is to be exalted, not the rich man with little glory. You know, when you just think about the life of Christ, he was without partiality. You know, one of the most telling things about his own life was this in Luke 2, I think it's, it's, or it's in Luke 20, that even his enemies said, we know that you speak and teach correctly and that you are not partial to any. <laughs> wow. That's what his enemies said about him. You speak, you teach correctly, and you're not partial to any. What a testimony. Not partial to anyone. I hope that that can be said of us. I mean, we are to be like our Lord and treat the lowest paid laborer with the same basic respect as a business owner who is well off. So here is a clear command from the very heart of God and from our gracious Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if God is not a respecter of persons or partial, then why would we be, right? We should never be. So you just have to look into your heart. You have to look into your life. You have to look in. Do you respect people either by way of position or rank or status? And if you do, you're exhorted by clear command here to show no partiality. And this is not a small problem. In fact, look down in James 2.9. He says to us there, if you show partiality, you are committing what? Sin. You're committing sin. Okay. So partiality, number one, is a sin before God because of the clear command from God. But secondly, partiality is a sin because of the comparison drawn, because of the comparison drawn. And certainly your eyes have seen this before. He gives us an illustration. He draws a comparison. Look at it in verse two. I mean, what if this happened at Grace Church in the Valley? For if a man 
wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit down at my feet. He draws a comparison. I mean, picture this in the life of this church, but picture this in the life of Grace Church of the Valley. A man enters into our church. He's wearing a gold ring. Uh, Actually, the, the Greek says, He's literally a gold-fingered man. The text doesn't say one gold ring. The text says that he's literally gold-fingered. He has many rings on. In other words, this guy walks into the flock, okay, and he's got what one said, a gem on every joint. He had a, a, a nugget, if you will, on every knuckle, okay? In fact, even as you look back in the church, in church history, biblical history, there was even a shop in Rome where you could rent rings for special occasions. In fact, the practice of wearing a ring was a sign in this day of luxury, a sign of wealth. So here is this rich man. Look at the text again. He comes wearing a gold ring, but that's not all. Verse 2 says he comes wearing fine clothing. The Greek word is lampros. I mean, this guy comes into the flock. He's got rings, if you will, on, on all of his hands or many of them. And he comes in this fine clothing. Lampros literally means bright and shining. You get the idea this guy isn't dressed from a local yard sale, okay? In fact, that same verb for shining garments was used of the angel who appeared to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 30. So this guy walks in. You can picture it. He's got the rings. He's got the shiny clothes. You say, is the guy a believer or is he an unbeliever? I don't know. But he walked into our flock. You know what I really wanted to do today? I wanted to dress somebody up in our flock who looked like this, and then I wanted to get the comparison with the other guy. But this man, you get the picture. He walks in. He is lit up like a Christmas tree. Then the poor man enters, and look how he enters. Look at verse 2. It says he comes in, and it says that he's in, we use the ESV says, in shabby clothing. Okay, shabby. Do we use the word shabby? We might say that looks shabby, but the word just means he comes in in filthy clothing. This is the same type of clothes that's on the beggar. Remember that guy who sat before the gate of the rich man longing for crumbs to fall from the rich man's table, but he was unwilling. They're dressed very similar. So GCV, imagine the eyes of congregation, our congregation, admirably fixed upon the rich man. You are in awe of this man by his rings and by his shiny garment. And as he comes down, you say to your spouse, maybe, hey, look at that guy. Look at that woman, maybe. This is a guy. but look, look, Look at them. You know, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, the rich man enters with the bling bling and he ends up in the box seats. Okay, so you got this comparison drawn. One is in rings and the other is in rags. One is filthy and the other is fabulous. And they both enter into the church at the same time. They both enter in simultaneously. Seats are scarce. They go around the building. They don't sit in the middle like this. They surround the building and you sit on the outside or or on the floor. 
You say, well, what happened? Well, look at the text. He'll tell you what happened. He said in verse 3, you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothing. And you say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my footstool. Wow. You get the picture. I mean, you remember in the Gospels and the in the Jewish synagogues, the, most, the, the more significant you are, the better seats you had. Matthew 23, 6 says of the religious leaders that they love the place of honor at banquets. They love the chief seats in the synagogues. Have you ever sat down there at a Dodger game? <laughs> I have. I've sat down there with all the movie stars. And, and as I look back at the all, you know, they're all there in the game. It's I, a friend had tickets and you're under the stadium eating at the restaurant with the movie stars and the Hall of Fame players. And I watch people and they don't watch the game. They just watch people go back. Well, listen, this happened in the church. Here comes this guy. He gets the bling bling and gets the box seat right up front. He's ushered into the place of privilege. The poor man is put into the place of a pauper. In fact, it almost seems like from the text, it's a double negative. He's not just at the footstool, which would be kind of, um, to sit at the footstool would be a little derogatory. You'll note the text says, it says, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. In other words, it's even removed from the, the footstool, if you will. I wonder if we do this. David Nystrom who's a theologian, maybe this hits a little closer to home. Because in America, he says, there are clearly defined roles and professions that we think deserve greater respect than others. This is a theologian writing. He said, when I was 27 years old, I was asked by a leader to attend an annual meeting of the pastors of his denomination. After one evening session, a group of 50 of us were invited to join him and join one of the him and the, the 50 leaders and the denominational leaders in his suite for a time of conversation. And so he goes into this suite. He said several hotel employees were present wearing their hotel uniforms and serving coffee. Can you picture that? They're serving coffee, soft drinks, cookies. He says, in situations like this, I feel ill at ease and usually opt for activity for, to keep me busy. I noticed that there were not enough hotel employees to cover all the tasks in the room because of the soft drinks were handled in self-serve fashion. So I begin to pour soft drinks into glasses for the guests. He said, I suppose my suit, in my suit, I may have appeared as the supervisor of the crew of the hotel workers in the room. And one distinguished looking guest approached and I served him. And he treated me, Nystrom says, in a brusque, inhuman fashion uh, that anyone who has worked in the service sector knows all too well. He said, I, I, I attempted to engage him in conversation, but with a dismissive, uh, dis- dismissive glance, he simply walked away. He said, soon after, we were called to order and formed a larger circle in order to begin the time of discussion. Along with a few others, I arranged my chair behind the circle and found myself sitting directly behind the gentleman whom I served. Commenting upon the sermon we had heard a few minutes before, our host then said, let us begin by hearing the opinion of our resident New Testament specialist. And at this point, he turned and he looked at me. And the gentleman in front of me 
turned, and when he realized that I was the New Testament specialist in question, his visage fell and his skin paled. Afterward, he approached me, and without reference to our earlier uh, non-interchangeable, to our earlier conversation, he spoke in tones that were kind and flattering. He said the entire scene left a bad taste in my mouth. He said what had changed. He said I was still the same person, wearing the same clothes, with the same foibles or uh, yeah foibles and frailties. It was simply that he had misjudged my status as our culture defines it. In his mind, Nystrom said, a New Testament specialist is to be accorded more honor than the employee of a hotel. Wow. I just hope we don't do that with each other. Amen? I mean, the issue here, you understand this, is not about being rich. It's not about being poor. It's the motive that affects the behavior of how you view people. And here, bottom line, bottom line, is discrimination in the body of Christ. And James says, it's got to stop. He says partiality is a sin because of the clear command from God, because of the comparison drawn. And thirdly here, because of the condemnation stated. Look what he says there. He says in verse 4, have you then not, or have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, yes, and become judges with evil thoughts? Yes, you have. The idea here when he talks about distinction, is to divide, separate each other. You have discriminated between the rich and the poor. And in fact, Proverbs puts it this way, that to show partiality in judgment is not good. 24-23. Leviticus 19-15 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. You are to judge your neighbor fairly. Listen, when we become more preoccupied with externals rather than internals, we show partiality. When we, and really I'm talking to you, I'm not talking to the the wealthy person. When we esteem the rich because of their appearance rather than being consumed with our glorious Lord, this is sin, right? I mean, we are to be, you, we know this, a classless society. Galatians 3.27, 3.28, For all of you have been baptized into Christ. You have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ at the foot of the cross, right? And so James, James asks, look at the last phrase there in 2.4. He says, and you've become judges with evil thoughts. In other words, recognizing and gazing at our glorious Lord, you're making distinctions and you're judging people with evil motives. You know, not to get into it too far, there's different words that, that speak of evil. In fact, look over at 119. There's three different words just in the book of James. In 119, remember when it says there, not in 119, excuse me, 121. There, he says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant 
wickedness. There's that word wickedness. It's the word kakia, okay? That's the word wickedness. That just describes that. If you glance over in your Bible to chapter 3, look over at chapter 3, verse 16. Here's another one where it's used, a very similar word for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every, here's another word, vile practice. So you've got rampant wickedness, you've got vile practice, but I have to tell you here, this is a different word. When you look at chapter 2, 3, or 2, 4, when it says you become judges with evil thoughts, he uses another word there. It is the strongest verb carrying the ideal of vicious intentions that have a destructive effect. This is just a sin. Listen, what is so dangerous in the sin of partiality is that it not only sins against the heartbeat of God, but it actually becomes a litmus test for your true condition and faith before God, right? In other words, it's not only his heart, but it becomes the litmus test for you. We just can't be that way. And I'm not here cranking on you saying I've seen that. I mean, if I see that, I'll call myself on it. I'll call me on it. I'll call you. We just can't ever be this way. Imagine this. It's old. Probably happened many years ago. True story. His name is Bill. Imagine this guy. He's just got wild hair. He wears a t-shirt. He's got holes in his jeans. He's got no shoes, and that was literally his wardrobe for his entire four years at college. And while he's at college, he becomes a Christian while attending that college. And across the street from the campus is a well-dressed, very conservative church. And one day, Bill just decides to go to church there. He walks in, picture this, with no shoes jeans, holy jeans, t-shirt, wild hair, and the service already started. And so Bill starts to walk down the aisle looking for a seat. And the church is packed and he can't find a seat. And now people are looking as he's coming down the aisle, a bit uncomfortable, but no one says anything. Bill gets closer and closer and closer to the pulpit when he realizes there are no seats. So he just squats down right on the carpet. And although perfectly, perfectly acceptable behavior at a college fellowship, this had never happened in the church before. And by now the people are really uptight and the tension in the air is thick. And about this time, the pastor realizes that way in the back of the church, an usher is slowly making his way toward Bill. Now this usher, if you can just picture it, it is in his 80s. Okay, he's got silver grayed hair. He's got a three piece suit on and he's got a pocket watch. Okay, he's a godly man. He's a very elegant man, very dignified, very courtly. He walks with a cane and he starts walking toward this student. And everyone is saying to themselves, you can't blame him for what he's about to do. How can you expect a man of his age a man of his background to understand some college kid sitting on the floor. It takes a long time for the man to reach the student. The church church is just utterly silent except for the clicking of the man's cane. 
All the eyes are focused on him. You can't hear anyone breathing. The, the, the people are thinking the pastor can't preach the sermon until the usher does what he has to do. And now they see this elderly man drop his cane on the floor. And with great difficulty, he lowers himself and sits down next to Bill and worships with him so he won't be alone. And everyone is just choked up with emotion. And when the pastor gains control, he says, what I'm about to preach, you will never remember. And what you have just seen, you will never forget. Listen, when we have a party on December 14th, we just need to love those people, don't we? I don't even know what it looks like. You're going to have people gathering here, 90 angel tree tags gone in one Sunday. Let me just say thank you from my heart. When I see you respond like that to needs in one day, I'm blown away. But I don't know what December 14th is going to look like. We're going to walk in, meet families, meet kids. But we just need to love on them, don't we? We just need to love them. doesn't matter what they look like. And, and whoever comes in, I, I just tell you, remember it says in 1 Samuel, God sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. And that's got to be our passion if we're going to be a church that honors the Lord. Amen.